Uh, Lord Jesus, we thank you for another Sunday to come together and to study your word together. And so, Lord, I pray that, that uh, this time would be a time where we would enjoy studying your word, that uh, you would open it to us, that you would send your spirit to work among us, and that we would learn, and that we would love it, and that we would change our lives. And so, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, go ahead and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 9. Uh, we're continuing through Hebrews this week, and we are coming now to chapter 9. And just by way of context, while you're turning there, we, uh, we've been in the fifth section of the book of Hebrews. Remember that uh, there are seven major sections in this book, or at least I'm putting it into seven sections. And uh, in these seven sections, you've got the fifth section, which we're on today, and this is on Christ being superior to the Old Covenant. Now, we've seen how Christ is superior to a lot of other things. He's superior to the prophets, to the angels, to Moses, all that kind of business. And now we're talking more generally about Jesus being superior to everything in the Old Covenant. And there's a number of things in the Old Covenant that the author of Hebrews is bringing out for us here. And one of them, which we're going to look at this morning, is here in chapter 9, and this is how Christ is superior to the priests in the tabernacle. All right, so we're going to talk about the tabernacle, and we're going to talk about the temple this morning. And before we do that, let me read for us our passage, which is Hebrews 9, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 24. So I'll read those verses for us here, starting with verse 1. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship, and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section, in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But in the second only, the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened, as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings and regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons 
with the ashes of a heifer, sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offer himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats, with water and scarlet wool and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything was purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus it was necessary... For the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. <clears throat> There's a, uh, a lot of teaching packed into this chapter, and so we're going to take a a big picture, bird's eye view approach to looking at this section. And uh, like I said before, the point the author wants to make here, right, is that Christ is superior to the old covenant. And to make that point, he gives us an example of how Christ is superior to a very central piece of the practice of those who lived under the old covenant. And that very important piece was worship at the tabernacle, and then later the temple. And so here, what our author is doing is he wants to compare the ministry of Christ with the ministry of the priests at the tabernacle, okay? And so what he's going to do is he's going to do just that. First thing he's going to do in the first 10 verses or so is he's going to tell us about the tabernacle, tells us about the structure, how this building is laid out, what the priests are doing when they go into the tabernacle, And then in verses 11 and following, he gives us the second part, which is explaining how Jesus mirrors those activities, but he mirrors them in a greater and better way. Okay, So let's uh, take a look at that here. But first, before we before we look at precisely what the author of Hebrews says, there's just something that we need to recognize straight uh, out of the gate here. And that is that Hebrews in this chapter is making somewhat of a unique move compared to a lot of the other New Testament authors. Uh, Because what a lot of the other New Testament authors do when they are looking at Old Testament patterns and Old Testament people and Old Testament events and stuff is they will see Old Testament things as foreshadowing New Testament realities. Okay? So, for example, if you were to go to 1 Corinthians 10, you don't have to do that. But if you were, and we talked about this in our sacrament series a couple months ago, in 1 Corinthians 10, 
Paul looks back at the event of Israel crossing the Red Sea, right? And he sees that event as a kind of foreshadowing of Christian baptism. Right? That is, Israel went down and, and in through the water, so Christians go in through the water in baptism. Right? Paul makes that connection, sort of typologically. And Paul also makes a connection in that passage between the manna that Israel ate in the wilderness and the Christian participation in the Lord's Supper. And so you can see there that Paul, a New Testament author under the inspiration of the Spirit, is seeing patterns in the Old Testament that are repeated in the New Testament. The Old Testament things are sort of foreshadowing New Testament things. Okay? That's something we see the authors of the New Testament do all of the time. Peter does it with baptism and Noah's flood. He sees a corresponding connection between those two. Hebrews does that, and we've seen Hebrews do that a lot. But in this passage, in this chapter, the author of Hebrews is doing something a little bit different. It's a little bit more nuanced than that. Because what he's doing as he looks at the tabernacle, as he looks at the temple structures, he doesn't just see the temple structures as simply corresponding to new, the New Testament salvation, right? Or, or the kind of thing that we experience right now on earth as Christians. But rather, what the author of Hebrews sees the temple corresponding to is specifically heaven itself. You see him talking all the time here in this passage about the temple and the tabernacle pointing to heaven itself. So in other words, if I can just state this a little bit more clearly, what the, most of the New Testament authors do is they see something in the Old Testament. Let's say we've got a timeline here. Something in the Old Testament. And then they trace that Old Testament thing over here to the New Testament. Right? Old Testament reality coming to effect in the New Testament. What the author of Hebrews does is a little bit different than that in this passage. Because he's not just seeing a horizontal connection between the Old Testament and New Testament. But what he's seeing is that the Old Testament reality over here is actually pointing up toward heaven. There's a vertical connection that our author's making. And that's really cool. And we're going to see why that's important here as we get into this text, because I think this is really fascinating. So let's look then, chapter 9, verse 1. Here, our author is describing for us the earthly tabernacle, the Old Testament tabernacle. How was it structured and what was going on? Now, he says in verse 1, Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. So you can see the author here is distinguishing between two major sections of the tabernacle. It was structured in this way. Now, maybe you're familiar with this. Maybe you aren't. But the tabernacle had two major sections. And the first one here that he's describing is the holy place or the sanctuary And this was the place where the priests would often come into multiple times a day. They would perform all kinds of ritual ceremonies in there. They would replace the bread on the table of showbread. They would continue to put oil into the lamps. uh, and, And they would always be involved in some kind of ritual activity going on in the sanctuary. And this was where all the priests came in. Now, all the priests came in here 
and did this multiple times a day. That's the first section. That's the the holy place of the tabernacle. But that's not the only place that was in the tabernacle. There was a curtain, and there's a second section. And that second section is here in verse 3, as our author puts it. He says, behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Well, we can speak in a little more detail because we've got a little more time than the author of Hebrews did. But you can see he's, he's giving us now a description not only of the holy place, but of the most holy place, that second section of the tabernacle. We sometimes call it the holy of holies. In fact, that's, that's literally a translation of the Hebrew, right? The holy of the holies or the most holy place. And it was in the most holy place that God's special presence dwelled. And not all of the priests were allowed to go into that place. Now, the priests were out in the sanctuary, the holy place, performing their ritual duties multiple times a day. But behind the curtain was this holy of holies where the Ark of the Covenant stood. And in this holy place, only the high priest was allowed to go. And the high priest couldn't go in there every day or even every month or even twice a year. He could only go into the Holy of Holies once each year. And that was on the Day of Atonement. And you can read about the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16. That's when the high priest on one day of the year would go into this holy place And he would take blood from a slaughtered lamb with him into the holy place. And he would go in there with this blood and he would sprinkle it on the top or on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. And that was to provide atonement for the sins of the people as well as for his own sin. And that only happened once a year on the Day of Atonement. So that's the structure of the tabernacle. You've got the two sections the holy place, and the really holy place, the holy of holies, right? The holy place, all the priests were in there every day. The holy of holies, only one person was allowed, and he could only go in there if he brought in the blood of a sacrifice, okay? So keep that in mind. That's the structure of the earthly Israelite tabernacle. Now in verse 11, or excuse me, not in verse 11, in verse... Um, eight, the Holy Spirit explains to us the meaning of this. Right? Now, here's the deal. Remember, last time we were together, when we were looking at chapter eight, we were told that when God prescribed exactly how the tabernacle was to be built to Moses, he did that because the tabernacle itself was supposed to be a kind of picture of heaven. It was very specifically calculated how big this tabernacle was to be, what the dimensions of it were to be. And we'll talk about that in in a, a little bit when we get to the end this morning. But the tabernacle was very specifically described by God to have serious significance. It was to point to something. 
And the Holy Spirit here in verse 8, according to the author of Hebrews, intended this by these divisions within the tabernacle. Here's what he says, verse 8. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. So there you can see, there is a symbolic significance to the way the tabernacles laid out. It has these two sections, holy place, holy of holies. And according to the Holy Spirit, the significance of this is that this symbolized the fact that God's people under the old covenant, God's people who had to perform all these ritual cleansings and all of these sacrifices and stuff, were not able to enter in to the sanctuary. They were not able to go in to the holy presence of God. They couldn't do it. That's the significance of the divisions here in the tabernacle. They're gradations of holiness, gradations of sacred space that God's people cannot go into yet. Why? Because they have not had that perfect sacrifice that will cleanse them enough so that they can enter those places. All right, so that's the structure of the tabernacle. That's the function of the priests within the tabernacle. And that's the significance of it. It's designed to show the sinfulness of God's people and their need for something greater than what these Old Testament priests could offer. And so in verse 11 then, our author goes into his second major point, which is as he describes the fact that Jesus and his ministry pictures and mirrors what the Old Testament priests and the tabernacle were showing us. He pictures this meaning for us. He, he, in fact, he is the, the full and final meaning of it. And so in verse 11, our author says this, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, even through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Now in verses 11 and following, the author of Hebrew has two major points that he wants to get across. And he says a lot of things to, to sort of buttress these two points. But here's his two points. Okay? First thing he wants us to see is that the high priest must enter the tent. The high priest must enter the tent. Okay? We saw, just a bit ago, in the earthly tabernacle, the high priest had to enter the tent to get into the Holy of Holies. All right? That was what the task of the high priest was, interceding for the people. He needed to enter the tabernacle. And so that's what he did. That was his task. And so Christ, as our high priest then in verse 11, also enters a tent, just like the Old Testament high priest. Only this tent, we're told, is a greater and a more perfect tent. 
It's a tent that's not made with hands. That is, he says, not of this creation. And so there you can see that the Old Testament tabernacle is clearly pointing toward heaven itself. The new creation tabernacle. It's pointing towards something even greater than we now experience. It's pointing to something far beyond that. It's pointing to what we will experience in the last day. It's pointing toward heaven itself. That's the tent that Jesus enters. That's the tent that he's going to. And because Jesus' sacrifice is infinitely greater than the sacrifice that the priest offered, it means that his tent that he goes into is much greater as well. And that leads us then to the author of Hebrews' second major point here. First one, the high priest has to enter the tent. But the second one is that in order to enter the tent, the high priest has to bring blood of the covenant. In order to enter this tent, the high priest has to consecrate the tent with the blood of the covenant. Right, and this is what he, what he says here in verse 15. This is how he explains it. He says, Therefore, Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So there you can see he's describing the fact that in order for the high priest to enter into the tabernacle, in order for him to go into the very unmitigated presence of God, the high priest had to bring with him blood. He had to bring blood of the covenant. He had to bring a sacrifice. It's the only way that he could go in there to mediate for the people and to provide that atonement. And so that is what Jesus does. You see, what Jesus does right, is he goes in to a greater tent because the sacrifice that he provided is greater than the bulls and goats. Now, why is it? Why is it that a sacrifice or that blood of the covenant is required to enter in to the tabernacle? Well, it's because death is required in order for sinners to be able to come into the presence of God. Death is required in order for sinners to be able to come into the presence of God. Man is sinful, and therefore he can't dwell with the holy God. 
God's holiness requires atonement, and atonement requires death. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. See, this is why God can't just turn a blind eye to our sin. He, he doesn't just you know, shove it under the rug or pass over it. That wouldn't be holy. That wouldn't be just. That wouldn't be righteous on God's part. There has to be atonement. There has to be the judgment on sin. And that judgment or that atonement that the author of Hebrews describes here has to come by the shedding of blood, by the blood of a covenant. And that is what Jesus' death was. Now, we're going to talk more specifically about Jesus' death and sacrifice next week when we're looking more specifically at chapter 10. But what I want to focus on more here is the fact that this sacrifice, this this shedding of the blood of Christ, is what allowed him to consecrate the heavenly tabernacle so that he could go in to the Holy of Holies as our high priest. And so you see, there's the pattern. There's the, the foreshadowing. There's the, the thing that the Old, Old Testament priest and tabernacle was pointing to. The tabernacle is a picture of heaven. The Old Testament priests are pictures of Christ. If we want to enter the tabernacle, the heavenly, ultimate tabernacle, we need Christ as our high priest to be our intercessor who walks in and consecrates that tabernacle by his shed blood. And this is where we see, by the way, Christ's superiority to the priests of the Old Testament. And we see it in this, all right? The earthly tent was purified with blood, and the heavenly tent was purified with blood. There's the parallel. All right, and just as the priests act on behalf of the people, so does Jesus. That's the other parallel. But Jesus is the greater priest, and he's the greater priest because of this. The earthly Old Testament priests, when they brought blood into the, high, to the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle, first of all, they had to do it repeatedly. They had to do it every year. It was not a once-for-all act that they accomplished. But not only did they have to do it once a year, it was still, even after the high priest went in with that blood, the high priest still could not bring anyone else in. Only the high priest could go in. No one else could. All that work, all that ritual, all that sacrificial work of the the Old Testament priest could only allow the priest himself to walk in. But when Christ, as our high priest, brought his blood into the Holy of Holies of the heavenly tabernacle, see, he didn't just provide a way for himself to go in, but he provided a way for himself and for all of those who are in him to come in. See, this is so much greater than the Old Testament priesthood. Jesus provides the way not only for for him, but for all of us to go into the Holy of Holies, to be in that unmitigated presence of God. His blood is that powerful. And we're going to see more about that powerful blood of Christ when we turn to chapter 10 next week, because chapter 10 is all about Christ's sacrificial work as it relates to the Old Testament sacrifices. And that's going to be a really, really good section.
All right. Wow, we're over time. Let me close this in prayer, and then I'll let you move out of here. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for the book of Hebrews particularly. And Lord, we, uh, we are humbled by the fact that we have this great privilege of living under the new covenant, that we get to see your promises manifest more clearly than many of your people in history. So, Lord, help us not to take that for granted. Help us to love and to dwell on these great truths this morning and prepare us now to worship you in spirit and in truth in our worship this morning. So we pray all these things in the holy name of Jesus. Amen.